You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. We will get back into it at the bottom of the hour with your texts. The topic will certainly go through this segment to a certain degree. We started the show with it for the most part. Some good debate online. Maybe we can get into that as well in the final part of this hour, Jamie. Just debate about whether or not Michael O'Connor should have been given the start this week. He's not going to get it. Jake Mayer is going to be the starting quarterback for Calgary tomorrow against the Montreal Alouettes. Dave Dickinson warned everybody, hey, we're still evaluating, and their evaluation has led them to that conclusion for this week. Might be short-lived. Maybe he gets a run. We'll wait and see. We all thought it was going to be Michael O'Connor. It's not going to be for this week, but there's been some healthy debate about that, so maybe we can get back in there. But Shohei Otani kind of launched our program today, and boys, it brought on a bevy of tasks texts when we've asked about most incredible seasons across sports that you've ever witnessed yeah it's been uh it's been fantastic to see the different ideas that our listeners have come up with one of the things i always enjoy about throwing these kind of questions out scotty is you know okay we think of obviously hockey baseball football basketball the big major north american team sports but i know a lot of our listeners have interests outside of those sports as well so we get some interesting answers from, you know, things that you and I wouldn't necessarily have at the top of mind, like this one from James the Liquor Rep, who says, the 1988 McLaren Honda F1 team, Prost and Senna, won 15 of 16 races. And yeah, I mean, I'm not an F1 expert, but if you talk about one team winning 15, all but one of these 16 races in a season, that strikes me as a pretty good year for that team. Yeah, it's not too bad. That's not too bad. It seems to be... Not bad, as is the 2017 Browns and the 2008 Lions out to be a really special group to go 0-16. <laughs> Very impressive, says our unsigned texter here with the most recent text. We'll get into some of the actual great accomplishments, but what Shohei Otani is doing certainly ranks among those. There are going to be some, and it's tough to argue against it, but it's a healthy debate. It's all in the eye of the beholder. There will be some that say... This is the greatest thing I have ever seen in baseball. He's doing it with the lumber. He leads the major leagues with 40 home runs after smacking number 40 last night. He's 8-1 on the mound. His ERA is below 3. And for a lot of people, because he's doing it in a way we've never seen in our lifetimes, it's going to be better than anything that either an individual pitcher has done in one of the incredible seasons or an individual hitter has done in an incredible season as well. Yeah, it is going to stand out for a lot of people. And I know, you know, we talked about it a little earlier in the show and we said, uh, well, Barry Bonds, okay, has the asterisk, but just purely at the statistical level, those seasons he put together in the early 2000s, they might be the only contender. I do think when, when all is said and done this year with Shohei Otani, though, a lot of people are going to have him on top just because we something we never, ever thought we would see, a guy doing it on the mound and at the plate. Well, and because of perhaps his his nature, we saw a little bit of swag last night, but that's not really the way he markets himself for the most part. He was having fun with his teammates, which was yeah. great to see, but he's not this outspoken, gregarious character in the media. And because he plays for a team that's not particularly good, and while L.A. overall is a big market, Anaheim isn't viewed that way around Major League Baseball. It's not one of those franchises that you would talk about. You made the point earlier in the show that it's probably still not appreciated enough. Yep. I mean, in general, Jamie, I think we could say most people, myself included, don't truly understand how hard it is to hit in the majors and don't truly understand how hard it is to pitch in the majors. So trying to combine the two is like going beautiful mind on the operation. Yeah, and just all of the factors. You know, just even think about 
how regimented a pitcher's schedule is normally, right? Where, you know, you you throw and then you have a very set schedule and routine between your next start, right? Where you're working, you, maybe you have one throw day in there, but you're resting your body the rest of the time. You're working with your pitching coach. I mean, that's completely different for Shohei Otani. And obviously he has his own routine that works for him, but he has had to carve out such a specific niche. And you're right. I don't think we as fans, even hardcore baseball fans, still have fully wrapped our minds around how difficult it is. We'll see if our next guest has. He is former Major League pitcher, current analyst Ricky Romero, who joins us on the program today. Ricky, thank you very much for taking the time. How are you? Good. How are you guys? Thanks for having me. No problem whatsoever, and thank you very much for joining us today. The obvious thing to ask you is about pitching, but I'm going to go the other way. What kind of a hitter were you growing up? Uh... I don't like touching that subject. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> well, and here's the reason I ask, Ricky, is because most big league players at some point were the best player on their team growing up, and at some point yeah. they decided, I'm going to focus on pitching now because that's just what you do. And you yeah. kind of wonder with these elite athletes like yourself, well, what, I wonder what kind of hitter this guy would have developed into. When did you stray away from that? Um, probably I had a good sense by – my senior year of high school uh when i was younger in my little league days yeah i could i could match with the best of them but <laughs> after that you kind of start seeing a little different pitching and the older i got i was like yeah hitting might not be my thing so i'll stick to 60 feet six inches and that's what i did yes you did and you did it very well now when we talk yeah. about hitting prior to shohei otani this season or maybe last season when you look at what he was doing prior to getting injured, who was the best hitter among starting pitchers that you ever personally saw? Personally saw? I mean, I got to go with Tim Hudson. He's the one that hit a home run off me in Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. it yeah, that'll do it. And and all I had heard was, oh, he's a pretty good hitter. So, so I still remember everything that happened that was said in the pitchers meeting. I still remember the exact pitch. I still remember what I was trying to do to him. It was, yeah, one of those things where um, they're like, he's a pretty good hitter, so just be careful because he, he will swing it. And I guess he was a good hitter at Clemson University, I believe. And sure enough, I'd been sinking the ball really good the whole game, sinking the ball really good. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to try and sneak a four-seamer by him. And he ambushed me and took me deep a few rows up in uh, the old Atlanta ballpark and we ended up losing the game. I think it was like two to one or three to one, something like that. So he was the difference maker that day. And <laughs> I look back, obviously, I laugh at it, but uh, that was a frustrating one for sure. Um, I, I looked it up quickly, Ricky, and you're selling yourself short of the plate because you did have two RBIs in your career. In, I did. In, uh, in, in interleague play. So and, there you go. You were I, producing. You were helping your team at the plate. Yeah, but you haven't mentioned how many at-bats it took me to get those two hits. <laughs> Fair enough. I won't go into that. I was trying to give you some shine there. You know, obviously playing with an AL team, right, you guys, you know, the pitchers don't get a chance to hit ever, and then you go you go into the NL parks in interleague play. Were there some guys on the staff that got excited that said, hey, man, I haven't done this since high school or college. I'm excited to swing the bat here a little bit. Or was it mostly, you know, guys in your position that kind of looked at it no. as, oh, man, are you serious? We had a few guys who were from the National League that were part of the rotation for a few years. Um, I remember the, the ones that come to mind were Carlos Villanueva, uh, Jojo Reyes at the time. Um, I know uh, my rookie year, I know Doc Halliday liked the, liked the, 
the competitive part about it. But, man, I'll tell you, the, the first time I stepped in the big league's batter's box was in Philadelphia against um, Cole Hamels when he was in his prime. And I walked up to that to that box, and I didn't even know where to put my, my – both my feet. I was like, I looked to, I looked at uh, Carlos Ruiz, and I was like, dude, where, where do my feet go on here? Like the batter's box just looks, look crazy big. And next thing you know, I look up, and as soon as I saw Cole Hamels, I was like, oh my god, we are a lot closer than I thought I was. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first thought. And now you're meant, you, you have a guy who's, who's what six four, six five, and the first pitch, I didn't even see it. And I thought it was like ten feet away, and he he, he, he it, was, it was probably a, a it was a fastball down and away that was a strike, and it looked like it was ten feet away. It, everything about it was just so fast that after my first career at bat, no joke, I came up to my to our hitting coach at the time, Dwayne Murphy, and I was like, "Hey, man, I will never, ever, ever talk crap on a hitter ever again. That is hard." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it ever, sure is. That. That's a great story, Ricky. Did you get a little ribbing in the dugout after that first one from the guys? Oh uh, no! Well, I was pitching, so I was in the middle of, of pitching. I ended up pitching a really good game, but I think my first career, three career bats were with men on base. I think I had the bases loaded twice, maybe or once, and then second and third, something crazy. And I ended up striking out three times. We ended up winning the game, but you know what? I, like I said, my respect to those guys. I've been. In, in, in a dugout with like a Jose Bautista and Edwin Encarnacion and when they talk hitting and they talk how they see spin out of the hand and how they know what where the ball's moving, that to me is elite to that's why those guys were so elite at one point. It's just it's crazy the way they see the game from the batter's box. Well, we wanted to get you on to get your perspective as a pitcher, looking at Shohei Otani, specifically what he's doing at the plate this year, obviously leading the major leagues in home runs, hitting his 40th last night. From your perspective, what makes him so dangerous as a hitter at the plate? He can hit the ball 500 feet. <laughs> That's what makes him dangerous. I mean, he's just, it, it, not only the power, but he, his approach. He knows what he's looking for. He knows he's not getting fooled. It's not like he's hitting, you know, 200 with 40 home runs his batting average is beyond respectable and um so you know that helps when you when you have a a clue of what you're doing at the plate where you know what you want you know what you want to do as a hitter and he knows what pitches he's looking for and when he gets those pitches he doesn't seem to miss and it's it always seems like um <clears throat> when guys try to uh you know, try to get in on him. Those hands just work so quick. And we've that home run he hit last night was crazy. I, uh, Detroit Stadium is not a small ballpark, and he made it look like a little league field with that home run. So, again, he has a great plan. He's a freak. I, I, everything he he does, he, he not only did he hit you know a big home run last night, he also goes on the mound and throws eight innings and. That's just stuff that obviously no none of no one has ever seen, and every time I feel like as a baseball fan, anytime you get to see him or if he's ever on your TV, don't miss out on that chance because this might never happen again. I'm with you, Ricky Romero, former Major League pitcher, joining us here today on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. And it's not just that he hits them out; he hits them from places you don't think guys can hit home runs. Like he's yeah. he's, he's not quite Vladdy Senior, but. He he's hit some home runs this season where you go, how can he turn on that? Like, how can he get enough power yeah. behind that yeah. as well? What's your approach to a hitter like that who has such a wide range of what he can do and where he can go? Yeah, you have to. I mean, if I was pitching 
now and he was a guy I was facing today, uh, you got to spend some time in the video room and do your homework, honestly. And, and sometimes you just kind of hope that he gets himself out more than anything. And, uh, um, you know, he's going to come out swinging. He's not, he doesn't really take a lot of pitches. He wants to get you early. Um, but he's almost like a, sometimes his swing reminds me a little bit of like an Ichiro swing with like power, the way they pull off the ball. Um, and it's just, it's, it's crazy. Like I said, Ichiro for me was a awesome hitter. Like he was so tough to face. Now imagine Ichiro with, with, with power, you get Shohei Otani and, um, you know, and obviously Ichiro was a much better, uh, bad handler. Um, but man, that's just like, like just their swings kind of remind me a lot, except like, again, like, like I'm saying, Otani's swing is, is he swings for power. So here's the other part. I'm really glad that you mentioned the home run in the seventh, and he's got to come back out and pitch the next inning as well. And he ends up going eight because it's that swing in emotion. And you know this as well as anybody. It's such a mental game. It's such a mental position. And his team's jacked up, and he's showing a little swag in the dugout after that home run. And now he's got to dial himself back in mentally. How much of an appreciation do you have for the managing of emotions doing both roles? Oh, big time. I mean, you appreciate a lot, but he's also been doing it for a long time, I feel like. So I think he's prepared. He's more than prepared for situations like that. He did it in Japan. He was a two-way guy out there. And I remember hearing about him. I used to train with a guy that he was, he was Japanese. He was a Japanese trainer. And he'd always say, he'd always tell me, he's like, hey, dude, there's this guy, Shohei Otani, that, that legit, and he's going to come play here in the big leagues. And he's going to go to both ways. And I was like, there's no way, man. There's no, I kept arguing. I'd argue with him every day. He's like, you got to watch him, Rick. You got to watch him, watch his highlights. And then I started seeing him and, and knowing who he was when he was in Japan. And I was like, Oh my God. And I still didn't think it was possible at the big league level, but he has made that transition pretty easy. So again, it's one of those guys that when, when you're watching him, you you appreciate him a lot. And um, it's fun. I mean, he's, not only does he hit 500-foot home runs, he throws 100, and uh, he's a freak of nature. He most certainly is. He hits the type of highlights we want to see. Chris Bassett was part of one this week that we never want to see, and it was that comebacker that he took off the face and had two lacerations, and I know that he's getting procedures done as well, but good news is no issue with his eye. I can't remember if you ever had a really bad comebacker, but I'm sure over the course of your pitching career at whatever level, you got hit by a comebacker at some point. How do you get past that, get back out there, and wipe that away from your memory? Oh, man. Yeah, when whenever you see stuff like that, it's 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 scary stuff, and, and you hate to see somebody get hit like that. Um you know, I never really got hit with the straight line drive. I got hit, you know, one hoppers, but they're coming in hot. That's what people don't realize. Those things are coming in really, really hot. And you, uh, uh, Mark Teixeira almost decapitated me in New York one year. And uh, I'll never forget that. And he told me the next day, he's like, I, I, I literally thought I killed you because I went down. I ended up catching the ball, but I don't know how I caught it. It's all reaction and just put your glove up and hope it. you just deflect it at that point. And, uh, um, but even getting through that for the next inning, it was like, okay, let's take a deep breath and, 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 and you're all right, you know, but I'm sure for, for Chris Bassett, obviously it takes a little bit more, um, on the mental side to try and come back and, and not have 
you know, some kind of mental lapse where you think uh, it's going to happen again. Hey, Ricky, before we let you go here, I just wanted to get your thoughts on uh, the Blue Jays quickly. We've seen, you know, the bullpen has been an issue for the Jays all year. It's it's come up again over the last few days here. For a team, you know, not just for a starting pitcher like for, like yourself, but for the whole team, how difficult is it mentally again when you feel like you can't have a ton of confidence in your bullpen that they're going to be able to come in and shut the door at the end of games? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I'm sure nobody's more frustrated than those guys in that clubhouse. You know, all of them. I, I think you know when, as cliche as it sounds, when when you lose, you lose as a team. You know, you don't lose as an individual. Um, but <clears throat> you know, I, I think baseball is a sport that you can't look at the past. You know, you have to focus on the today. And hopefully, once they come home and and hopefully they're able to get hot again. Four games, they're out. Four games, they sound like they're out. Ten games, or they have crazy ground to make up. Um, so you're hoping they get hot and, uh, and, and hopefully cut that, uh, those four games, you know, into maybe a game or two and, 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 and then, and they'll be playing some meaningful games in, in September. Again, they're playing playoff baseball from here on out. So they can't afford to have lapses, um, like they've had. And I mean, those guys in the bullpen definitely know that they have to pitch better. So, um, you know, uh, I'm looking forward to see how they bounce back from this series. So this is an important series this weekend here uh, in Toronto versus the Detroit Tigers. So I'm looking forward to how they bounce back. Yeah, they've got the off day today. And for inspiration, they shouldn't be watching baseball. They should be watching replays of Team Canada's women's soccer en route to gold, <laughs> getting it done. For those who don't know, your wife is a former national team player for Canada, Carl Lang. Her career derailed because of injury. You take me through watching the gold medal game with your wife and what it meant to your household. It was awesome. Um, first of all, we had just gotten into Toronto the night before. So we got to watch the game here. And we just bought a home in Toronto. So we got to watch that game in our brand new living room and um it was awesome it was very emotional for her um i feel like anytime you bring it up even now she starts crying and i think she she realizes you know the sweat and tears that was put into um growing that that team and to be able to have an accomplishment like that it's 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 amazing and and you know i've heard stories about her and even though she doesn't like telling them very much (laughs) uh everything i hear i hear from other people from from her dad, from her mom, but um, to see the emotion, um, not only her, but of the Canadian national team and just all of Canada, it was, it was, it was awesome. And, and obviously everyone knows about Christine Sinclair and everything she's meant to, to the Canadian soccer team. Um, and you're just happy for her. So it was definitely an emotional time for her. And, and she's very, very happy that they, that they got the gold medal. Absolutely. And listen, I know she's too humble to talk about herself, but I'll talk about her because I'm I'm old enough to have covered her and Christine when they burst onto the scene in the early part of this century and got people on board with this women's program. And, and there are a lot of people who don't realize this gold medal was two decades in the making. I know your wife, yeah. Caroline, can only truly answer this, but do you get a sense of how much she still might feel a part of this gold medal, even though she doesn't get one around her neck? Yeah, like you mentioned, she's too humble to even take any credit. But you know what? Um, she might get mad if I say this, but <laughs> she's received a lot of beautiful messages from uh, girls that are on the team now about how you know she, 
they were inspired by watching her when they were younger. And I, to me, that's the ultimate compliment. Like it makes me beyond proud of her and to see, to read some of those messages um, from, you know, from those, the girls that were part of that team, that gold medal team is, it's pretty cool. And it just shows the impact that she had, that she made um, on that team as a, as a young, as a young woman. And, and again, you just never know who you're inspiring. And uh, that's why you go out there and you try to be the ultimate pro and, and, and good things happen. And like I said, I was pumped. I was pumped to see them win. And, um, and yeah, to her, it's, it's the ultimate uh, prize. You know, she's beyond happy for all the girls. You're from L.A. Who are you cheering for in the semifinal, Canada, U.S.? Uh, you know what? I was. I got. I got to stick with Cara. I was. I was rooting for for Canada. Honest. Honestly. Now. Now. It, in the men's, when it was Canada, Mexico, it's definitely Mexico. I don't care who it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. We're getting you back on. We're getting you back on for Concacaf matches. Then this coming fall. All right. <laughs> but when it comes to women, women's soccer, yeah, I. I usually ride with with the Canadian team and, and you know obviously Cara having those ties so but when it comes to men's uh yeah I'm team Mexico all the way good answer <laughs> my man happy wife happy life and I imagine she's still happy and beaming because of that gold medal to this day Ricky thank you very much for your time today really appreciate you taking it and say hi to your yeah. wife and congratulate her on our behalf will do thank you guys very much pleasure coming on that is Ricky Romero his wife has mentioned Carl Lang Romero. Jamie, I don't know how much you followed women's soccer back in the day, but those were really two of the bigger faces of the program as that next wave of Canadians came on. And obviously, Christine Sinclair is toward the tail end, and we mentioned her already on the program today, but Carl Lang was a phenom for this country as well, and they really did build that program into what we saw culminate in Tokyo. Yeah, and as you heard Ricky say there, just the fact that you know she's getting those messages of you know support and and just saying acknowledgement really from the younger players on the team that hey you helped build this you were a huge inspiration for me and you know as ricky said she's probably too humble to say it but i I thought it was awesome to hear the pride in ricky's voice talking about it you can get back in on the conversation right now man i get fired up talking about that olympic women's team again about that program and what it's done over the last two decades our listeners are fired up about the question we put out there we haven't gone to all the texts yet We'll get to more of them next. The greatest individual seasons that you have seen in your lifetime in sport. Let's get into that conversation. We'll revisit some of them next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Getting closer, Greg. You're getting closer. Thought about it. Didn't go with the karaoke there. It's Rintoul. It's Jamie Dodd in for Karen Sermon this week. Jamie's trying to do this on a regular basis. He, I feel like Greg, and you can chime in here, Greg, if you want in a moment, but I feel like Greg every day at some point during the show thinks, I know some of the bands Rintoul likes, and what if I played this song? Do you think that he would he would take the dare that I'm setting before him and jump in and start singing along? There's a deep cut out there that I know you're going to just go in <laughs> on. It's out there. It's not happened yet. We will see, but I do love this band. It's Scott Rintoul and Jamie Dodd, and as mentioned... We're talking about some of the great individual seasons that you have seen in your lifetime. We can revisit a couple of the ones that we mentioned earlier in the show, Jamie. And I wanted to start with one that came in early from one of our listeners. And we haven't mentioned it yet, but I want to get to it. Because when we think of truly incredible years, everybody has a different definition. 
for a different reason. Shohei Otani might be putting forth the most incredible season we've ever seen in baseball because of the unique nature of it being both a pitcher and a hitter. Mario Lemieux, back in 92-93, getting diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma and then coming back from his cancer treatments to win the scoring title that year. That got brought up by a couple of people early, and it certainly bears mentioning. Yeah, it it really does. As you said, coming back from that kind of adversity to win the scoring title, you know, winning the scoring title despite only playing 60 games, just the raw numbers, 69 goals in 60 games, 160 points. When you think about what he was doing, what he was going through off the ice as well at that time, it, it certainly deserves mention with some of these other great seasons in hockey history and in sports history. Yeah, and as someone who has a wife who went through that many years ago, and thank everybody who helped her. She's good now. She went through the treatments, but I saw what it did to you. Like, I saw what it did to her going through chemo. And for him to summon the energy after that to come back and do what he did against the best hockey players in the world, it is truly remarkable, and I understand why that submission came forth. Oh, no doubt about it. It's, it's again, it's the kind of thing where you just have to dig a little bit deeper than, you know, just going – and seeing, okay, who has the most points in an NHL history, which is obviously Wayne Gretzky, which is a, an incredible accomplishment in its own right. But you're right. The story behind that season puts it into consideration. We had this one come in as well, saying, well, I can't say it's the most dominant single season or seasons. Take a look at the numbers that Nolan Ryan put up in 1973 and then again in 1974. You look at his starts, his complete games, his innings pitch, his strikeouts, two incredible seasons, one of the best bodies of work for a long and dominant career in history that's from k in calgary and when you say k you associate that with nolan ryan as well in each of those seasons 26 complete games he started 41 games in 1973 he started or pardon me he started 39 games in 1973 he started 41 in 1974 and 26 in each of those seasons were complete james jamie Yeah, Nolan Ryan is a fascinating kind of baseball reference page and a fascinating test case for this kind of conversation because the strikeout numbers are insane. I mean, in 1973, he struck out 383 guys, which is just a wild number. And obviously, he was a workhorse, you know, threw well over 300 innings in that year. The fascinating thing, though, is, I mean, he was also leading the league in walks in in those years, right? So it's an incredible accomplishment, but in terms of overall effectiveness as a pitcher, I'm not sure he cracks the conversation with some of the other great pitching seasons we've seen because he did have the downside to his, his style as well. This one comes in from Sean in Langley. Came in early, hadn't gotten to it yet. Jamie, we mentioned the Wilt Chamberlain season of 61-62 where Wilt the Stilt averaged over 50 points a game and over 25 rebounds per game for an entire season. It's incredible. Sean said, while we're on the NBA talk, I know he's polarizing, but Russell Westbrook and all of his triple-doubles averages for a season and multiple seasons, it's incredible. The guy doesn't get the props he deserves, says Sean. Maybe if he wins a a ring with LeBron James this year, that sentiment will change. Do you agree with Sean? Well, we've had that come in a number of times, both to Vancouver and Calgary, Russell Westbrook and averaging the triple-double. I agree to an extent that it is an incredible accomplishment, but it's kind of a similar thing to Nolan Ryan for me, right? Where the stat is incredible and it catches your eye and you say, wow, I can't believe he did that. 
But I do think there are overall questions, or there are questions about the overall impact on winning that separates it from some of the other great seasons in the sport. And I don't want to sound like I'm trashing Russell Westbrook because I have a lot of respect for what he's done in the NBA. I mean, he won an MVP, he's won to help his team win a ton of games. But in those years, other than the MVP year, in some of those subsequent years where he's averaged triple doubles, you wouldn't necessarily look at him as, okay, he had a top five season in the league this year, right? Because, okay, triple doubles, cool, but we also understand there are other ways to help your team win games. So I get what he's saying. He is a polarizing player. I understand both why he would be nominated in this conversation and why other people would say, mm, I, don't, I don't think he quite, quite fits for me. Well, that brings up another divisive topic, which is how much should one player take the heroics or the blame for winning? And yep. that's part of the Russell conversation. He played on some really, really good teams that won a whole lot of games. He went to an NBA final in Oklahoma City, but he was not seen as the biggest star on those teams. He's a really good player. His His polarizing nature with the media or the way that fans perceive him hurts him. And I think that's part of what Sean is getting at here. The other thing that I think hurts him in the conversation, Sean, is that triple doubles, as impressive as they are, they've never been more easy to come by. That doesn't mean they're easy. It just means they're easier than they used to be because of the pace of play, because of the prevalence of three-point shooting. There are more opportunities to generate all stats now relative to a lot of the teams that played back in the day, Jamie. And the other thing is you get the sense with Westbrook that he is, to a certain extent anyways, going out of his way to get those triple doubles, right? And I mean, so, okay, so what? He's racking up stats, but, you know, there are times in the game where that rebound could go to the team's power forward or center or whatever, and he's grabbing that rebound, right, to make sure he gets up to those triple-double numbers. I don't have a big problem with that, but it's it does change it a little bit, right, how you look at the accomplishment. Someone texted in early, Damian Warner's dominant decathlon win is much more impressive than Otani. From your perspective, unsigned texter, that, that's fair. And there are others who will say, well, hold on, depth of field here. That would be the argument against yeah. Damian Warner. I don't want to take anything away from any of these great seasons. I said this off the top. It's really tough to compare sport to sport. If you win the... 100-meter race, you're the fastest man on the planet. If you win the decathlon, and this is going back to the 70s with then Bruce Jenner, you are labeled the greatest athlete in the world. And everybody's definition of that is a little bit different, but because of what you have to do in the decathlon, you understand why that argument gets made. I don't want to take anything away from Damian Warner, but if you were arguing against that, I think your argument would be, well, how many people worldwide are competing for the gold medal and trying to get those points in decathlon relative to what Shohei Otani is doing in the major leagues. And I think, and again, look, we had Damian Warner on the program while you were away, Scotty. It was great to speak to him. I have an incredible amount of admiration for and respect for what he accomplished. But it's also true that, you know, somebody wins the gold medal in decathlon every four years. Now he put up an Olympic record. That's really impressive. He's one of only a handful of guys who've been able to crack the 9,000 barrier, uh, 9,000 point barrier in the decathlon. But again, other people have done that in the past. Don't want to take anything away from it, but that's the thing that separates Shohei Otani is nobody's done this. You can make an argument that even Babe Ruth didn't do what Shohei Otani is doing right now, and that's going back a century to even find the closest comparison. So that's what separates it for me. This one just came in. I want to get the texter right. Uh, it's Troy the Bread guy who says, Pedro in 1999. He's referencing Martinez, of course. 
I discount it completely because it was done with the Boston Red Sox. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm not a Red Sox guy. But, yeah, he was incredibly dominant that year. Started 29 games. And what he did on them, he had 313 strikeouts. His whip was .923 that year, Jamie. He was incredible. An ERA of 207. He was 23-4. and four. It was an incredible year. He was the Cy Young winner. He finished second in the MVP balloting that year for the Sox. And that year, I believe, was also the year that the All-Star game was at Fenway, and he struck it. He was the starter, of course, and he struck mm-hmm. out the side in the top of the first, and it was just a, an incredible All-Star moment. This was on my list, Pedro Martinez. You could actually even make an argument. The, the win-loss total isn't as impressive, but you could make an argument that he was even better in and 2000 when his ERA was yeah. all the way down at 174. The thing that, that, that stands out to me for Pedro is, is okay you hear the ERA right and you know whatever it is it's what was it 2 207 and 99 174 and 2000 that's incredible that's an incredible number in any era of baseball but think about that specific era right that was the height of the steroid era where people were just mashing home runs left right and center you know you're only a couple years removed from the Bonds and Maguire home run chase it was probably the most offensively charged era in baseball history and he's out there putting up numbers that would have been impressive in the dead ball era, right? So just the gap between what he was doing and what the environment in baseball at that time was set up for, that's why he was on my list. Yep, he's there, though I only count his Montreal years. Those are the only ones I like. That's it. Just <laughs> Not even the Mets the at the end no. of his career? No, nope, just like the one with the Expos. Those are the only ones I'm counting. And maybe we give the tiebreaker to the year that he beat up Don Zimmer. Okay, he didn't yes. beat up Don Zimmer, but he threw down Don Zimmer. What was Don Zimmer doing out there? That was such a bizarre incident back in the day. It really was. It was a, it was a curious one. Yeah. Yeah, it was curious. Tim in Vancouver says, compare Pedro's earned run average to the league average at that time. It's actually mind-blowing, and I don't have the league average in front of me at that time, but we can look that up during the course of the break. We've had another couple of nominations for Wayne Gretzky. I nominated the 82-83 season because that's the one where he has 92 goals to go along with the 120 assists. He had more points in 84-85 where he had 215 points, and his lack points out in the text message inbox, in both of those seasons, he won the scoring title on assists alone. Yeah, that's a crazy stat. The, the thing with Wayne Gretzky, and you know, I was saying this about Mary Lemieux's hockey DB page earlier. You can just you can spend forever just looking at it and find interesting quirks like that, right? Like the fact that he would have won the scoring title strictly on assists alone in one of those seasons. There's so many different years. It feels like you could pick for Gretzky in this conversation. I did want to throw this one out there because we haven't really dipped our toe into this sport in this conversation yet, Scotty, but this unsigned text came in 650-650. Get your submissions in 960-960 as well. And the texter says, when comparing athletes across different sports, soccer has to get a huge edge based on the sheer amount of athletes competing. If Gretzky was better than 1 million hockey players, for example, Ronaldo is better than 100 million footballers. Well, it's an interesting point about the depth of field, but... I also want to hear what our listeners have to say about great individual seasons in soccer history, right? I don't know. Is it a year that Messi put together at Barcelona? Is it Ronaldo? Do you have to go back to Maradona, Pele? I don't know what the answer is, but I'd be very interested to hear what our listeners have to say. The greatest individual season ever uh, from a soccer or a footballer, as our texter calls them. Yep. Get those in right now. Jamie gave you the text numbers. Get on it. We will answer those and we'll get them into the show. This has been nominated a couple of times, and we haven't touched on it yet either. McDavid's season last year with 105 points, 
in 56 games. It's a great accomplishment. There are two things, obviously, that are going to bring that argument down when you're comparing to the seasons of Gretzky or Bobby Orr. One is that it's only 56 games. That's not McDavid's fault. But the pace argument is a tough one to make because it's it doesn't feel complete. And that's not his yeah. fault. But you can't make the pace argument when you're arguing against the volume of some of the statistics that others put up. It's an incredible season, but it'll be tough to argue on that. The other is this, that he only played against six other teams. That Again, not his fault, but that will always work against him in this argument. Yeah, and it's just hard to it's it's hard to put it up in the the pantheon. You know, we're talking about Bobby Orr winning the Art Ross as a defenseman, and what we were talking about with Mario Lemieux fighting cancer in the same year he's leading the league in scoring. It's just hard with those caveats you have to put on the McDavid season to get it into that level of the conversation. I wanted to read this one out from Donkey the Roofer here in Vancouver because I think it's an interesting argument. He says, okay, best single season in sports. Okay, guys, bear with me. This is a deep dig from a Jets fan, but I believe it's warranted. Darrell Revis's 2009 season. He had six picks, one return for a touchdown, 50-something tackles. Those stats aren't what matters. The best stat line against him that season by a wide receiver was five catches for 58 yards. Wide receivers came to his island, and he consistently shut them down. And I like that submission, again, because, okay, you got to confine it to his position, and it's so unique to even compare players in football between positions. But, yeah, for a cornerback, that is an incredible season. And, again, you think about, okay, six interceptions is, is a remarkable year for any defensive back in the NFL. That's also knowing that guys aren't that likely to throw in his direction, right? Not a lot of quarterbacks are yet, yeah, I'll throw it over there where Darrell Revis is. So he's not even getting that many chances to pick off the ball, and he still finished with six. So I like that that uh, submission from Donkey the Roofer. I think he is still digging because that is a deep dig. It's not the greatest cornerback season in NFL history, but Darrell Revis was really good. I like the outside of the box thinking I just can't get behind it, and I understand as a Jets fan, he's just trying to find some positive shine. Yeah, and maybe it's, there's it's just difficult sometimes. Yeah, there's just not enough there from Zach Wilson yet. Hey, he looked pretty efficient in his debut, and we'll see where it goes here in his rookie season as they try to turn the page. I think you got a good head coach. I think you got a fine leader of men there in Robert Sala donkey the roofer but i'm gonna have trouble getting on board with the darrell revis submission i like the outside of the box thinking though 1984 dan marino 5,000 passing yards and 48 touchdown passes it's a great year it's a great year and it took a long time to break those marks it's a different era of football not everybody was chucking it the way the dolphins were with the marks brothers and dan marino back in the mid 80s so i understand why someone would say that still going to be difficult for me to say that usurps Peyton Manning going for the passing record yardage-wise, 55 touchdowns to only 10 picks back in 2013. Yeah, and it is, again, that's, you know, similar with Pedro Martinez doing what he did in 99 and 2000. The most impressive part of it is the era that he did it in, and I think you could make the same case for Dan Marino there. Right now, the Dolphins were ahead of the curve in terms of how much they were throwing the ball, but the rules of the game were not set up to make it nearly as easy for passing offenses. So if you wanted to make that argument for Dan Marino, that's where you'd start, right? Just point out, hey, okay, yeah, his numbers aren't the same as what Peyton or, or Brady did in, in later years, but he had a much, much harder environment to work in. 
Uh, we've had this name come in a couple of times. I want to get it in. One person just texted in Barry Sanders. They didn't give us a year because, again, it's kind of, you know, there's a lot of them to choose from. But I'll look at his 1997 season with Detroit, his second to last year in the league. Went for over 2,000 yards, 11 touchdowns on the ground, averaged more than six yards an attempt, 6.1 yards per carry. Again, led the league in rushing with over 2,000 yards. He had an incredible career. There's a lot of different years you could choose from for Barry Sanders. That one sticks out for me. Poster on my wall. He's in that category. I had a poster of Barry Sanders on my wall growing up, and I was not a Lions fan at all. You know I'm a Niners guy. I loved Barry Sanders. He was so good. And we also have somebody pointing out, go back to his Heisman year at Oklahoma State oh. to see just how incredible it could be as well. That's a great pull, too. Remember him diving over the pile. That was the great shot on the cover of Sports Illustrated, which I collected back in the day, as many of our listeners probably did as well. Keep those texts coming in. There are a lot of them right now. Trying to filter through them right now and just try to get some that we haven't had in. We had people text in about teams. Jamie, we were combining this to individual seasons for the most part, but said, hey, if you want to talk about teams, we can do that. We had a couple of people say the Golden State Warriors winning 73 games, breaking the Bulls' record of 72-10. and 10. That'll never be done again, said those texters. Well, we're talking about just an individual regular season, or in this case, a team regular season. That will always get discounted a bit because they didn't win the title. Yep. Well, and it's exactly the same as the 16 or no Patriots, right? Okay, great, awesome, great accomplishment, but it's it's not the you know, it's not the one kind of crowning achievement in that league, in that league's history that it could have been, right? Right? If the Patriots finish off that Super Bowl against the Giants, it's basically no argument greatest team of all time, right? But they left the door open. I think you could say the same thing about the Golden State Warriors. If they finish off the NBA championship against the Cavs, yeah, you could say they're clearly the best team of all time in NBA history, but because they didn't get the job done in the finals, it's always going to be incredible accomplishment, but uh, we got to talk about this this aspect of it too. We've got another hour of our show to go, so we can continue this conversation. A lot of people have a lot of thoughts and some fun memories and rabbit holes for us to go down and good conversations to have, so we can keep that topic going. I did want to get this in before the end of the program. There is a thought out there. Michael O'Connor's not going to get the start for the Stampeders tomorrow night. And I did want to address this while we're still in both markets. And there's some disappointment. Jamie, you and I said, hey, just from a purely Canadian quarterback, unique standpoint, we're both a little bit disappointed on that front. I would have liked to have seen Michael O'Connor start. I also don't believe this dooms Michael O'Connor not to start for the Stamps this season. Bo Levi Mitchell's going to be out for a while. We'll see how Jake Mayer does. Stamps fans are hoping it goes incredibly well. But Michael O'Connor might get that opportunity. And there are some saying, ah, should have started the Canadian. That's exactly what this league needs. I'm on the side of this. To me, it actually proves why Michael O'Connor's on the roster. Not because, ah, he's not good enough to start this game. No, he legitimately earned his spot. He's not there because he's a Canadian, just like Andrew Buckley wasn't there because he was a Canadian. Just like Brad Sinopoli, before he turned into one of the best Canadian receivers in the league, and at one point one of the best Canadian receivers in the league, was on Dave Dickinson and John Huffnagel's roster because he was good enough to be there. And when Michael O'Connor gets his start, what it's going to tell you, because I think he's going to get one at some point, it's going to tell you he's earned it because Dave Dickinson plays the best guy that gives his team the best chance to win. 
that's the silver lining, right? Is that they're not going to do it as a PR play or for the good of the league or for anything like that. When they do do it, if they do it, we should say in this season, it's going to be because Michael O'Connor has earned his opportunity. It's going to be because they have confidence that at that instant, he's the best guy to help them win, right? So that does, it, it, it also gives you the confidence that they're not going to throw him into a situation they don't think he's ready for, right? They're not going to set him up to fail, if and when he does get the chance to play for the Stamps this year and to start for the Stamps this year, it's going to be in a situation that the coaching staff feels comfortable putting him in. While we're reading into things here today and everybody's formulating their own theories, what do you make of Jack Eichel's tweet? Did you see that? Oh, man, I did see that. I certainly did see that. Uh, I think it's safe to say he's he's had enough. He's, he would like to be on a team other than the Buffalo Sabres, would like to uh, potentially get that surgery done to try to get healthy as soon as possible. I don't think Jack Eichel is a happy camper right now. Yeah, I don't know how much more tweeting he's going to do today. I don't know if anybody close to Jack Eichel, whether that's his agent or his closest confidants or somebody who might be a source that would have a con connection to the media is going to explain this anymore. But all that he tweeted was an unamused face. That's it. So you can yep. take that as we're still not at a place where I can get the surgery that I want, that I believe I need to continue my career to the best of my ability, or, man, I thought we had a deal in place here, and it looks like it's not going through. I don't know what it means. I'm not going to sit here and tell you what it means, but it'll be speculated on in the hockey world, I can tell you that. Yep. It sure will. It's the, the power of a single emoji in a tweet can get the entire hockey world talking and speculating about what exactly Jack Eichel is trying to tell us here. We're going to turn you over to the big show in Calgary. We'll reconnect tomorrow morning, bright and early with you in Vancouver. This show rolls on. Sometimes you need the people at the center of it to explain it for themselves. They did it for us yesterday, and we'll talk about it next right here on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. Lots of good submissions coming in. We've got another topic, and actually two of them coming up, that I think you're going to want to dive in on as well. It's Scott Rintoul, Jamie Dodd, final hour of the program today. And, Jamie, since our text message inbox, the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox at 650-650, just for those out there who may not know this, whether your emojis actually show up, they do. Jack Eichel tweeted the unamused face, and a lot of people around the hockey world are trying to interpret what that means or are certainly curious as to what that means. We can put this general question out there as well. If you wanted people to ask questions and be curious, Jamie, what emoji would you tweet? <laughs> Well, it really depends. It really depends what you what the the tone of the question you're trying to get, right? Because right? you even if if you just tweet a single emoji, no matter what it is, people are gonna be like, "Hey, what's going on?" Right? It could be happy. It could be you know one of the laughing, crying ones. It could be one of these like the sad ones or the uh, you know bemused ones that Jack Eichel put out there. So it really depends. Which way are you trying to steer the conversation? That's the question. The peach. Right. The peach. Right. <laughs> yes, that one as well. You could put out the clown emoji, and people, what does this mean? <laughs> you could put that out. You could put out the shocked emoji. You could put out the hand just waving. Oh, oh, is, leaving? What, what, what is that? Yep. Are, are they saying goodbye to someone else? What's, you're right. If you just put out a single emoji, and you have a decent number of followers on one of the social platforms, people are going to ask questions. Jack Eichel knows what he's doing here. We just have no idea why he's doing it. 
And for Eichel specifically, you know, given the injury situation, I'm just looking through the emoji selection here, right? You know, you have the the face with a medical mask on, right? Or the face with a head bandage around it. He could could tweet out a doctor, maybe. That would be interesting. Like, that would get people talking for sure. Oh, my goodness, is he getting the surgery? What's going on? What's going on with his health? Well, it's a nice segue in to getting people talking. Because for many years now, people have been talking about the breakup of the Warriors. And not all of it went away. It just kind of felt like it did when Kevin Durant left. We remember the Warriors before Kevin Durant and how good that team was. Won a championship, nearly got a second, but LeBron and company had other ideas. They came back from 3-1 down in that 73-win season for the Golden State Warriors. Then Kevin Durant joined the party, and they won back-to-back titles. And as he and Draymond Green agreed on yesterday, to which Raptors fans will say, we don't care, they would have gotten a third had they not had the injuries that they had in the NBA final. They are lockstep in that. You can agree or disagree. But Kevin Durant leaving the Warriors, a lot of people have traced it back to the fight that Durant and Draymond Green had at the end of the game against the Clippers back in, I believe, November of their final season together, Jamie. And they didn't really talk publicly about it, but a lot of people said that's where it started. That festered on, and that's why Kevin Durant wanted the door. Yeah, that was the the moment, and I think there had been kind of you know whispers and rumblings before that, but that's when it really came to the forefront of the national discussion, you know, south of the border around the NBA. I think there are a couple of really good topics out of this because Draymond Green sat down with Kevin Durant. Draymond Green's doing this new series. Bleacher Report had it yesterday. It was a twenty-four minute interview. I watched the whole thing. Did you? I haven't watched the whole thing yet, but I've watched bits and pieces here here and there, yeah. Okay, so I watched the whole thing yesterday. I was really interested in that. That Warriors team was so much fun to watch. They were a show each and every time. They were they were the closest thing I've seen in basketball to, I've got to see this since the Chicago Bulls. And the Bulls weren't on yep. as frequently. You can catch any game anywhere. You can do NBA League, all of those different things now. Back in the day with the Bulls, if they were on TV, you had to see them or you had to set your VCR. That's right. I used a VCR back in the day. I had to tape things. The closest thing that I've seen to that in basketball is the Golden State Warriors because they were so entertaining to watch as well. So everybody's been wondering, was that the reason? This was the clip that got everybody talking and everybody was anticipating yesterday. It's why so many people watched this interview. It's Draymond Green. It's Kevin Durant, one-on-one, having the conversation. Have a listen. And for my, for my own personal um, sanity, because I've been getting my ass kicked ever since you left, so just for my own personal sanity, how much did our argument against the Clippers drive you to ultimately lead the Warriors? It wasn't the argument. It was the... F- the way that everybody, Steve Kerr, act like it didn't happen. Bob Myers and tried to just discipline you and think that that would put the mask over everything. I really felt like that was such a big situation for us as a group. The first time we went through something like that, we had to get all out. I remember watching the last dance and when Scotty didn't go into the game, the whole team in the locker room said, Scotty, that was up that you did that. We needed that. We just needed to throw all on the table and say, yo, Dre, okay, like, that up that we even had to go through that. Let's just wipe our hands with that and go f- go finish the task. I don't think we did that. We tried to dance around it. I just didn't like how all of that, just the vibe between all of that, it just made weird to me. And I'd rather us 
be who we say we are. Family first. Communication is key. Like, I, we didn't show that, and that, that's what rubbed me the wrong way more than anything. When we landed back from L.A., I sat in the... Hazel was sitting in the car for an hour and 45 minutes. They pulled me in that room at Signature for an hour and 45 minutes, and they tried to tell me, you need to apologize. And I told them, I'll talk to Kay, but y'all aren't going to tell me what I need to say. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they went on for an hour and 45 minutes talking, saying a bunch of And ultimately, they realized, all right, we're not getting through to him. We're going to try again in the morning. And so we met the next morning, and they said, all right, you slept on it. You ready to apologize? And I told them right then and there, I said, y'all about to this up. I said, the only person that can make this right is me and Kay. And there's nothing that y'all can do, and y'all are going to this up. And in my opinion, they it up. I think so, too. And they told me right then and there, like, we're going to suspend you for this game. I laughed in their face, literally laughed in their face. And Bob said to me, he said, uh, wow, that was not the reaction I was looking for or expecting. And I said, well, either I'm going to laugh in your face or I'm going to cuss you the f*** out. So you pick, I'm going to choose laugh. So I, I think what you're doing is funny, and so I'm going to laugh. And so it's interesting to hear you say essentially the same thing that I told them that day. Interesting. And we got our answer. No, it wasn't because of the fight. It's because of the way the fight was handled. And both players blame the coach and the management for the way it was handled. What was your reaction to hearing that? Yeah, it was interesting. You know, I do feel like in some ways there's a little bit of contradiction in their answers, right, where Kevin Durant sounded like he wanted more acknowledgement from the team and from the higher-ups, and Draymond is saying, you know, no, just let us sort it out ourselves. But I think what they have in common is that it had to be handled and, it ha and then they had to move on, right? And I think maybe the common ground between the two of them is if in the locker room right after the game, if there had been a team discussion about it and then they move on from it, that probably would have been the best solution. But what they did was... Okay, the higher-ups get involved, but not really out in the open. It's kind of behind closed doors, talking to Draymond. And it was just this middle ground approach that didn't work. And that can all be true. But it was in November of their season together. And in what league, Jamie, are players more empowered than the NBA? You're not going to yep. find one. You're not going to find one. Players run their teams, and they do feel empowered. And I don't think that's a bad thing at all. So if Kevin Durant and Draymond Green believed the only two people who were going to fix it were he and KD, then why didn't they fix it? Yeah. Like, then, that's then, my question then Draymond, here. Then one of them's got to pick up the phone or, or right. shoot the other one a text or whatever, yeah, and fix it. I agree. I, I totally agree. Right, and Steve Kerr and Bob Myers could have screwed that up. That's fine. But if you've got the type of team atmosphere that we've known the Golden State Warriors to have, it doesn't mean they've done everything perfectly, but they've been very communicative with their players. It doesn't mean they're always right. But then you would, like Draymond Green said, hey, call them on the carpet, and you would call your teammate, and you would say, well, let's fix this then, but neither of them chose to go down that road. So while the management and coach may have made a poor decision, it wasn't unfixable, and that's on them. That's on them. Yeah, ultimately it is on them. And just to your point about you know the empowerment of the players in the NBA, and even specifically in that situation in Golden State – 
I mean, don't forget, Draymond, Draymond Green is still a Golden State Warrior, right? He still plays for the team, and he is yep. calling out the head coach and the general manager in pretty pointed language there. So, yeah, he obviously does feel empowered to speak his mind on issues like this. Which is fine because throughout that interview, and for those who haven't watched it, it's about 24 minutes long, I found it really interesting the, the whole way through. We don't have to get into the entire thing. We'll just focus on the part that we played there, but... Like Kevin Durant references later in the interview, all oh, those times that you and Kerr would cuss each other, cuss each other out during practice, like full on, but then it would be done as soon as we were done practice. So there was a pretty open relationship there where people felt free to speak their mind. And for this to derail it, sorry, take a little bit of accountability as well. They're in a good place, obviously, that they sat down together and hashed things out. It brings up a couple of topics here. The Warriors breaking up. It's not quite the same as others. It's only felt that way because of the injuries. That's why it's felt that way. Like, KD's the guy who left. It wasn't as though the other protagonists in this story left. It's just that Clay Thompson, Steph Curry, they've all been beat up, and it hasn't been the same since that time. Yeah, but only one of the principals made the, the decision to leave. And For sure. I think because, you know, because he was kind of a late arrival to the scene in Golden State, right, and wasn't a part of their first championship or the 73-win team, it doesn't feel as meaningful as some other sports breakups, right, because he was there for a relatively short period of time. So let's go down the road of memorable sports breakups, and you can get in. Dunbar Lumber, text message inbox 650-650. What are some of the most memorable sports breakups that you can remember? And we can talk about some of those feuds as well. And then there's another topic that you brought up, Jamie, which I think is a good one as well, because you had two guys who had a feud, we didn't have answers, and you wanted to hear them hash out the story, which Green and Kevin Durant did. Give us two people. They might be on the same list. There's going to be a Venn diagram where there's a lot of overlap here. Yeah, yeah. Which which two athletes or sports personalities would you like to see sit down and hash out a situation or interview each other in? So I'll start with this instead of the sports breakup one. And it's actually the this pair it would not be on the sports breakup list because, you know, they've never been together to break up. But it's topical. It, it's kind of in the news, you know, in the PGA Tour this year. How about Brooks Kepka and Bryson DeChambeau having a sit-down, tell-all interview with each other where they really try to hash out their feelings for each other? Because those guys do not like each other whatsoever. And, of course, all of this, this thought experiment is, you know, predicated on the idea that you could get guys to be honest and candid about their true feelings. But you can just feel the dislike for each other anytime they have to come close to interacting on the golf course. So Brooks Kepka, Bryson DeChambeau, I think you might get some fireworks there if they sat down for this kind of thing. I don't care if you cheer for one or either of them. Don't we all want to see them on the U.S. Ryder Cup oh, team man. and being forced to play together? I'm not sure that they'll go down that road, but can you imagine? Well, or, uh, yeah, that, I mean, I, I think if you're the captain of the Ryder Cup team, you're probably doing everything you can to keep those guys apart from each other on the course, unless you're, I don't know, a bit of a mad scientist and you think it might bring the best out of both of them. The other thing, though, is Sunday at a, at a major, right? You want to see them as the top two guys on the leaderboard and forced to play in a pairing together in the final pairing. That's that's certainly something I want to see. Something tells me Steve Stricker is not going to put them together in the Ryder Cup. That's no, just a guess. I don't think so. Just a guess on my part. Well, if we're going Can you imagine the, the, the press conference after that uh, decision was announced, though? That would be an interesting one. <laughs> so, so walk us through this one again, Steve. Well, everybody always wondered about Phil and Tiger. Are they going to put Phil and Tiger yep. together in a Ryder Cup? Are they going to do that? And that 
if you want to call it feud, that clash, it has softened over the years, and there's a respect for one another, and there appears to be much more of a friendship than there was during the height of their rivalry, and that's often the way it goes. There are some that I, I think of when you introduce this topic of, okay, let's see two people sit down together and hash it out. I'll tell you, we were talking about the Lions. The Lions play tonight. We'll hear a clip from their new owner a little later in the hour. How about Dave Dickinson and Casey Printers? I would love to see those two guys sit down, and I covered that team extensively, but the season where Printers was the MOP, Dickinson starts the Grey Cup, they come back the next year, there's some public feuding. I'd like to see those two guys here 15, 16 years later sit down and, and talk about that situation and how they felt about it then and maybe how they feel about it now. Yeah, that's a good one. And that's one that has the benefit of, as you said, you know, 15, 16 years, a little bit of distance. So maybe some of that emotion has softened a little and maybe the two guys involved there are a little more willing to open up because they have the space. They've gained some perspective perspective on what exactly went down there. Angelo and Joe, I wondered if we'd get that text and can't be done anymore, I believe. I think Angelo Mosca has left. I could be wrong. I will I will check during the break. Angelo Mosca, Joe Cap. Do you remember that? A few years ago at yes. the Grey Cup. Oh, yeah. That's a bunch, I bunch sure of do. 2014, I believe, was that was the Grey Cup where, or maybe it was 2011. I think it was 2014. But Joe Cap took the swing at Angelo Mosca oh, all yeah. those years later for the dirty hit on Willie Fleming. Yep. Like I men. remember that very clearly. Like Mosca that was Kane to get yeah. on stage. That was really, I mean, that was, I, I remember seeing, you know, ESPN going crazy for that clip, right? Like that really had, that, that that went well beyond the world of the CFL. I'm glad to hear that I was incorrect. Angelo Mosca is still with us. So, so there I you correct, go. They I can, will they correct can hash myself it out still. on this. Gary from North Burnaby has one that I had on my list. How about Michael Jordan and Isaiah Thomas? That's a good one. That's a really good one. Isaiah, the dream team, Jordan saying, nope. Jordan saying, I never told him not to bring him on this team. You don't believe that, do you, Jamie? No, I do, I do not believe that. Yeah, like I'm a cape for Jordan guy as a player, but I don't believe that for a second. I believe that's the only reason Isaiah Thomas wasn't on that team, quite frankly. Yes, of course it was, I think. I think that's a, a totally fair assumption to make. T.O. and Donovan McNabb says Arj. Yeah, that was a pretty public feud. And listen, that's a T.O. Good one. T.O. could probably have a series. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, the funny thing is, you know, also I was thinking about this with, um, you know, because we, we're talking about it because of Kevin Durant and Draymond Green. I mean, I think you could do a Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook one edition of these two, right? That didn't end on the best of terms uh, in Oklahoma City. So that Kevin Durant's another guy who could figure in more than one of these. I did not have this on my list, but this would play well and Canucks fans would tune in. Jim Benning and Trevor Linden. Yep. Now, the, the question there is, is it Jim Benning and Trevor Linden you want to see, or is it Trevor Linden and Francesco Aquilini? Is that the one you really want to see there, right? I, I, I know the Benning and Linden one would be pretty interesting, but I think to get the juiciest possible sit-down between two parties, I think you might go Trevor Linden and Francesco Aquilini. It probably depends on what you believe. It really does. Yep. And our listeners can text in and, and you can tell us which one you would rather see. But it probably depends if you believe the Trevor Linden thought he and, and Jim were lockstep. And then there was, unbeknownst to Trevor, some sort of difference of opinion. And, and maybe betrayed might be too strong of a word. But that's how many have characterized it on the part of Trevor Linden. 
And with ownership, it might be as simple as, well, I, I told you that if we don't go this way that I'm out, and ownership finally said you're out. That might be an easier one. I kind of lean with Donkey the Roofer. I think I might rather yeah, see the bidding in Linden. Fair enough. I, I, I'm Look, don't get me wrong. It would be interesting. I would sign up for that. I, I'd chip in some money to the pay-per-view uh, event for that sit-down interview for sure. Unsigned texter says, Claude Lemieux and Chris Draper. Mm, yep. Tough to get over somebody breaking your face. Yep. Yep. That's a tough one. That is a very, very tough one. Um, this one was on my list when I was putting this together. John Tortorella and Bob Hartley. Of course, we all remember the famous incident with John Tortorella trying to get at Bob Hartley after that game and after the line brawl. And the thing I like about that one is, you know, we all know what a fiery personality John Tortorella can bring to certain situations. And that wasn't just a one-off incident. There was beef and dislike between those two coaches even leading up to that for years prior. So, yeah, again, you know, with the assumption that you'd get guys sharing their real emotions and their real takes on each other, Tortorella and Hartley is on my list. We had a couple come in that I didn't necessarily expect, others that I did already have on my list. I wondered if anybody would go down this road where I, when I mentioned sports personalities and someone did, Adrian and Duncan saying Jim Rome, and he says Chris Everett. That's what got Jim Everett back in the day so upset. He came across the stage and roughed up Jim Rome, which kind of put him on the map. He was already somewhat of an accomplished sports broadcaster, but that incident took him viral before viral was even a thing. Yes, that's a great one. That is a fantastic uh, submission. Mike and Burnaby has a good one here, but I hadn't thought of. The Montreal screw job is the worst double cross oh. I've ever witnessed. Both Bret Hart and Vince McMahon lost complete yes. control of their emotions. It was real, and it was brutal. So that's a fantastic one. Again, the question there is, and I know if you could do – Bret Hart would be okay with this. Can you get Vince McMahon to kind of step out of character and go real on the situation. Bret Hart would. I know Bret Hart would. Would Vince McMahon hold up his end of the bargain? But that's a really, really good off-the-board one. East Van Tom. That's a really good one. I hadn't thought into the world of professional wrestling, but that's a really good one. East Van Tommy, you're going to have to clarify for this. You said Tanya Harding and Kat. Do you mean Nancy Kerrigan? Is that who you're pointing? Because, I mean, there's a fair one to put up there. Yep. That, that would get a little spicy, I would think. We've got Patrick Waugh and Mario Tremblay. I had that on my list. That's one of the great sports feuds of all time, and they've kind of mended ways. I don't know if those two men have mended ways, but certainly Waugh having his jersey retired in yeah. Montreal. Like yeah. they've, they've mended that. Obviously, they can't do it, and, and they did come to terms before Kobe Bryant left this planet. Shaq and Kobe, we're talking about sports feuds. Like, that's one of the ones back in the day. We said that the Durant and Warriors breakup was preventable if those two players, who by their own admissions, just said, hey, we're the only ones who could fix it. Well, they yep. could have fixed it then, and they could have stayed together, but Kevin Durant had other plans. Shaq and Kobe will always go down as one of the, why did you guys screw up such a good thing? Yeah. You had an amazing thing going. Three championships you win together. Yeah, okay, that comes to an end after that in the, the series against the Pistons. But that's also, and again, unfortunately, we're never going to get the opportunity to have this anymore. Because they did mend the fences and repair that relationship later, you know, there's two ways you can go with this. In some cases, you want the situation where there's still that that kind of raw emotion and, and raw 
maybe uh, anger or, or, or distaste for each other. But I also think it's interesting the other way where both of the parties have that perspective to kind of sit down and now they're friendly with each other so you can get into a bit of a more real conversation. That's a great submission. Yeah, like Tortorella and, and Bob Hartley, I think it's still a good one that you brought up yes. a little bit earlier. There are some that still feel like they're alive. Yeah. And on the, on the basketball topic, LeBron and Kyrie, I would watch that. Yep. I would want oh, yeah. to see that. Maybe we could do a uh, – it could be a four-way interview. You get LeBron, Kyrie, KD, and Russell Westbrook. Because, you know, they've, they've switched teammates now, right, LeBron and KD. But there's a lot of beef to go around between those four players. And I believe that's on the Christmas Day schedule this year for the NBA too. Yeah, it most certainly is. And LeBron's been involved in a couple, and he made good on one of them because the decision was one of the biggest sports breakups we've ever seen. You're talking about a guy drafted first overall by his hometown, has already led them to a championship appearance, and then breaks up with his franchise on public television. And that feud became between the owner and LeBron James. Yep, it did. with The famous Comic Sans letter, uh, you know, guaranteeing that they would win a title before LeBron James didn't quite play out that way. No. LeBron certainly got certainly got the better of that argument. And then, as you say, made good on it and buried the hatchet completely by eventually coming back to Cleveland. We got a lot of football fans in this market. What about Earl Thomas and the Seahawks? Jamie, you're a Hawks fan yourself. That's a pretty big sports feud. I mean, Pete Carroll's the type of guy that would probably have some sort of amicable conversation with Earl at some point, but that didn't end on good terms. No, it certainly didn't, of course. Flashing the finger at the sideline famously. That's one where you also just kind of hope Earl Thomas is in a good spot in his life now, right, given how his career and some things off the field went for him after he left Seattle. But you also wonder if that would be a situation where, you know, let's say you look at it from a breakup perspective and it's Earl Thomas with the franchise. But if you wanted Earl Thomas to kind of spill the beans on exactly everything that went down, who would you pair him up with potentially for an interview, right? Would it be, you know, Richard Sherman, who also left the team, Cam Chancellor maybe, maybe one of the defensive linemen who was there for a long time who has insight into the situation. There's no shortage of potential personalities there that would be interesting to see him kind of hash it out with. Someone texted in Torts and Larry Brooks. I think the misconception is that they don't have a good relationship. They do. Yeah. That was just one blow-up. Yes, exactly. They and and the other thing with that is, I mean, we see that all the time, or we did see it all the time, right? Because they he interviewed him almost every day when he was <laughs> when he was covering that team, not in this same setting, but they got to ch- they got a chance to talk a lot uh, when he was still in New York. I like this submission because it doesn't it didn't necessarily jump top of mind for me, but I do think there's a really interesting dynamic here, and it comes from Lee. He says, "How about a coach and a player, Tom Brady and Bill Belichick?" And it's kind of interesting to think about it because they had so much success for so many years together, but you also got the sense that it wasn't exactly an amicable breakup, that Tom Brady had some hard feelings there when he was leaving New England. And then you look at what Tom Brady went and did immediately in Tampa Bay, what happened for Bill Belichick and the Patriots. I do think there's some interesting, probably unexplored emotions between those two guys that they could get into. Well, here's why it would be interesting now, because Tom Brady publicly is a lot more interesting. Yep. He's willing to say stuff, and certainly on social media, willing to do stuff that he hasn't in the past. He doesn't mind if some people don't like him or what he says rubs some people the wrong way. And so you feel like Brady's at a point in his life, in his career, where if that actually were to happen, he would speak his mind as opposed to most of his career where Tom Brady knew what to say, and that's what he said. Yeah, exactly. He is more willing now to 
to just voice his opinion. And you'd think he would be more willing in that context, too. You hope that he would anyways. Lots of them coming in. We will get into some more on the other side. We've got some more audio coming your way. It's been a very interactive show. Let's keep that going. 650-650. It's the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. It's Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Raja Shergill is doing a fine job producing the program this week. He's doing so again today. Our thanks to you, Raja. And Raja was responsible for all of the bleeps in that piece of audio <laughs> we gave you from Kevin Durant and Draymond Green. And I texted him during the break, and I said, have you ever had to bleep that many words in just a single piece of audio? He said, no, never in that. And it brought up a funny topic that you and I both both brought up, or you brought it up saying that's almost as bad as watching a movie that contains swear words, you brought up Pulp Fiction, and it's on basic cable, yeah. and you see it, and you go, oh, Pulp Fiction's on, and then it gets to that first blue word, and it's bleeped out. Yeah, and it feels like, you know, in that there was sections of that clip we played from uh, Draymond and KD that, you know, for 30 seconds, almost every other word is bleeped out, and it feels like that in some movies. And Pulp Fiction is the first one that popped to mind for me, right, where, okay, you can bleep it, but you're going to lose a lot. There's a lot of bleeping that needs to be done. It's not going to have quite the same impact as if you're listening or watching Uncensored. And I don't need a movie to have a whole bunch of swear words to be good, but when a movie does have a whole bunch of swear words and you bleep them and I see it, the first time I hear one, Jay, I'm out. I'm out. Yeah. Like, I'm done. I can't do it. I need that to be part of the reality of the film. And, yes, I can probably go dial it up on some other outlet. But I think it just goes back to my childhood, and probably you have this as well, that when you see a movie that's really good on basic cable that you didn't have to go order up yourself, just like back in the day when it would come, you'd be like, oh, that's on. i got to watch that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's it's actually, you know, you needed those movies to come on TV to see them. That was like the easiest way to see them, to catch it randomly on TV one day. We've had a lot of people texting in, 650, 650. It's the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Athletes that you want to see sit down together and interview each other or hash out a situation. Trevor Linden's name has come up again. Trevor Linden, Mark Messier. I did wonder if this would come up, and it did. Good for you, Chris in the Ridge. You've been in twice today. You got the shout-out for MS Day at A&W, $2 from every teen burger going to help support MS and MS Research. Pratt and Taylor was a good sports fight, <laughs> said Chris in the Ridge. Now, that one has, has since been rectified. I'm going to tell you the part that I think is underrated about that fight, and I don't know if everybody knows this or not, and that's way back at the former station that no longer exists and I worked at for 12 years, and... They got into it about poker, and it would, well, Tom Watson was the genesis, and there were some great lines in all of that. Do you know the part that not many people know? Because they were sitting in studio together, as in yep. normal times we would be right now, Jamie, and obviously they're going back and forth on it, and emotions are getting ratcheted up, and eventually Pratt leaves the studio. Rob Gray, who was the program director, was in studio for that segment. So imagine having that happen <laughs> with your boss. Like, imagine you and I getting into it, but C-Mac just happened to come in the studio that segment and listen in. Rob used to do that from time to time. C-Mac certainly hasn't done that very often at 6.50, but every once in a while, just come sit in, have a listen to what's going on, and just witness the dynamic live. He was in there for that segment, man. 
That is incredible. That yeah. I did not know that detail about it. And oh man, that's fantastic. Just think about, you know, it's like um when you're back in school, if you had a uh, a student teacher or something, right? And then the supervising teacher sits in a little bit to to watch them or somebody comes to evaluate the job your teacher is doing. And just imagine if that's the day when, you know, the troublemaker in the class <laughs> chooses to just go nuclear. That's amazing. That's a fantastic wrinkle to that story. We've been alerted to this on Twitter and in our inbox as well. Amon got this in in our inbox we mentioned Patrick Waugh, Mario Tremblay. Apparently, they have patched things up because they star in a commercial together go. that I have not seen. It's a Skip the Dishes commercial, apparently. And Amon says, you should check it out. It's not bad at all. There you go. I'm glad to hear that they have mended the fence there. I haven't seen that commercial either, but I saw the uh, the texts coming in. I mean, there's look, there's nothing like you know a little money uh, being thrown your way to come work together to get you to bury the hatchet. People were actually lauding that commercial, you guys, for the reason the Habs got to the Stanley Cup final. It sort of broke all the curses <laughs> because they mended their, their bridge. I did not see that one. I'll have to check it out. Thanks to all of our loyal listeners who texted in on that. Donkey the Roofer said Donnie's best line during the feud was, I work up more of a sweat folding laundry. I can't remember if that was their line or if it was, oh, I folded laundry today. I guess I'm an athlete. That was, either way, it worked. <laughs> either way, it worked. Mike Piazza and Roger Clemens, that one's come in a few times as well. Tommy Trivia was the latest to get that one. Remember Clemens throwing the broken bat at him? Oh, yeah. I sure do. Yep. And that, I mean, you can look back kind of now at what we know about the substances that were being used in Major League Baseball at the time. You could ask some questions, but that was a weird one. Oh, I don't think Clemens took it, did he? It, it just his wife ordered it. Wasn't that right? Yeah, that's wasn't my understanding. Yeah, Wasn't that it checks out. Defense? checks out. It, I think we, it was, yeah. We heard a lot of misremember, and we heard a lot of uh, my wife was using it. Like, that yes. is a next level of defending yourself. And uh, listen, you're a married man. I'm a married man. Unless my wife comes to me and suggests that, there's no way I'm going down that road. And even then, you're like, look, I, I'll, I'll be the one let's who's accountable. Let's not do this. Yeah, let's yeah. not drag you into this. But, man. I think it's usually um, usually your wife ordering steroids is what lets you throw, you know, 200 innings with a, a 187 ERA at the age of 42. That's usually what leads to that, I think. Yeah. Dave sent this one in as far as sports beefs, and maybe you'd like to see someone sit down, hash out their differences. This one allegedly is ongoing. Dave sent in Evander Kane and any teammate. Jamie, I'm sure you read it. I know I read it in the last oh, yeah. couple of weeks. Kevin Kurtz had that piece. We all know about the allegations from Evander Kane's former partner and that the NHL is doing an investigation into because of the gambling allegations. But then Kevin Kurtz days later came out with the story about how bad it got from a teammate perspective in San Jose and that there were unnamed members of the team going into the coach's office and the GM's office and saying, we can't do this. Like we need him to go somewhere else. He needs to play somewhere else. Yeah, that's one of the, the most interesting, apparently, ongoing sports feuds that we have, certainly in the NHL right now, is just that whole subplot of, okay, he's got all these off-the-ice issues that he's trying to work through and he's trying to deal with, and apparently guys in that locker room are not too thrilled about it. They're not too thrilled about kind of being around that situation with, with, with Evander Kane. Yeah, apparently, and I guess we'll get information. Somebody's going to talk at some point in time. I don't know if they'll actually go on the record or if it will be you know, sources close to team, players who wanted to remain nameless that will get the information. Evander Kane shortly thereafter tweeted out a photo of himself in Sharks gear, obviously getting ready at skates on. He was going out 
to get ready for the season, but man, come training camp in San Jose, there are going to be a lot of people with a lot of questions they want answers to. Yeah, there sure are. Um, how about, you know, we, we were talking about Jack Eichel's cryptic tweet earlier. How about Jack Eichel and, you know, take your pick, member of the Buffalo Sabres organization. You want to go Kevin Adams? You want to go uh, a little higher up the food chain to the Pagula family? Whatever, take your pick. I think that would be a pretty interesting conversation to get out in public right now, given what's happening there. Yeah, one of the ones I wanted to hear, I agree with you on that, Kenny Williams and Frank Thomas. I don't know how many people remember this, but this jogged my memory when people mentioned the Pratt and Taylor feud on air. We used to have this great piece of audio there that I can't find. I can't find it anywhere on the internet right now, and I liked it so much that I may have to call somebody in Chicago and see if they have it somewhere in their archives. Frank Thomas was celebrated as a Chicago White Sox, right? One yep, of the great players. Very much one, so. The yep. big hurt. One, and eventually they parted ways with him. It didn't end on particularly good terms, and Frank Thomas made that clear publicly. And GM Kenny Williams, he lost it at one point. And it was in spring training, I want to say in 2006. Like, it goes back to in and around then. And it was this great rant about Frank Thomas. And it was Kenny Williams on the record saying he's an idiot. He's selfish. And that's why we don't want him around anymore. We don't miss him. <laughs> good riddance. Like, it was this – we had – boiled it down and put all the clips together because it was about a six and a half minute tirade about Frank Thomas and about how we had to cover his butt for a whole bunch of things where we shouldn't have. And the organization went to bat for him, but Kenny Williams just laid into him publicly. And one of the great clips in it was he better stay out of our business. He better stay out of White Sox business. <laughs> and of course, uh, Jerry Reinsdorf involved in that feud, right, as the owner mm -hmm. of the White Sox. And I think part of that, part of what led to that was maybe Frank Thomas had had some words about Jerry Reinsdorf and Kenny Williams kind of was riding to the owner's defense, which you get. He's your boss. He's the guy signing your check. You understand why Kenny, uh, why Kenny Williams might want to do that. I mean, the other storyline I'm surprised we haven't got into yet, when we're talking about breakups and guys we want to see hash it out that, you know, Jerry Reinsdorf is involved in is going back to those 90s Bulls. And I know we've just had the big deep dive into it with The Last Dance, but what's also come out recently is, mm -hmm. hey, it turns out Scottie Pippen has a lot of thoughts about some things that went down with those Bulls teams that he would like to get off his chest, right? We remember the comments he made not that long ago about Phil Jackson. So I think, you know, Pippen and Phil Jackson would be really interesting, but even to get a kind of unvarnished look at the relationship between Scottie Pippen and MJ in a sit-down interview, that one, I, you know, again, I'm, I'm a little surprised that I didn't even think of it until just a couple minutes ago. But I think that those personalities, and especially of what we know about how Pippen feels about the situation, would be fascinating. Well, we don't know as much as we're going to because his book's coming out this yep. fall, if I'm not mistaken. And it's some type of tell-all to what extent i don't know but i'll tell you this as a bulls fan from the 80s and 90s i'm pretty interested in seeing what he has to say oh absolutely and you know he's going to be doing the media tour when that comes out as well right so we'll get the quotes from the book he's going to be doing a lot of interviews we're going to get based on what we already saw when he was on with dan patrick not that long ago you know we're going to get some spicy quotes out of pippin uh, on the air as well Jose Bautista and Rugnid Odor, says Mike and Victoria. I doubt they're willing to sit in the same room yet. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that one. I couldn't. I mistaken, don't know about that one. But yeah, I'd like to see that one. I would like to see that one. The current owner well, of, of the Canucks and the guy who he was in a consortium with, Tom Gallardi. Francesco Aquilini and Tom Gallardi. Sorry, Jamie, I didn't mean to step on you there, but that one no, 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 been all right. suggested just now as well, but Gramrit. 
Yeah, that's a good one. I, and that's the kind of thing where, I don't know, do we know the, the whole story exactly there? Or, or would we be getting some revelations if those two guys sat down? Well, we'd probably get more of the story. I think they're okay-ish. I remember when we had Tom Gallardi on last year when the Stars made the run to the Stanley Cup final, and we asked a question about that to a certain extent, and it wasn't a deep dive, but I think Tom Gallardi kind of said, like, yeah, we're okay. Like, we're okay now. Yeah. Enough time has passed, and they might not be the best of buddies, but it seems like they've kind of moved on, and because they're both NHL owners, like if the feud was that bad, because remember people said for the longest time, well, the Stars and the Canucks don't never deal with one another because of this. Right. Yes, and that seems to be a little bit overblown, for sure. Keep those texts coming in. Booth and Torts, says KH. Yep. KH also says Torts and Lou. Yep. F- funny how John Tortorella comes up a lot in this. <laughs> He does. <laughs> who, who would have guessed that John Tortorella's name would be mentioned a few times here? Darcy Tucker and Mike Pekka says this text. So we had Mike Pekka on just the other day. It was a really good interview. Great job by Raja yep. getting him on the station. I thought Mike Pekka performed admirably during that Q&A. Yeah, I don't know if that one would have dissipated yet either. A couple of fiery guys. I get the sense, like maybe I'm wrong completely on this, but because Pekka and Tucker both did a lot of the same things and went about it the same way. Like years later, it feels to me like there'd be some type of mutual respect where they would both kind of almost laugh about it now and like, yeah, well, we played in a different era. Things were crazy. I That's the kind of sense I get to it from it as well. And you think, because Mike Becker was very upfront that, you know, he had to play with that edge, right? And because he recognizes that he's going to understand that other players in the league have to play with that edge right as well so there probably would be that mutual understanding you even heard from you know we we he brought up the Matias Olin hit because we asked him about the big brawl between the Sabres uh, and the Canucks and you even heard him say like you know I did feel a little bit bad not that I was going to change my style of play but you know it's never fun to injure someone so I think there's that understanding of look this is what I have to do but it doesn't mean we have to hate each other after the fact Man, we've had a ton of interaction today. Got to credit the listeners. Bravo, bravo. You brought it today in full force. We expect that to continue through the last day of programming. We're not quite done yet, but I did want to get this clip in here before the end of the program. Look, the BC Lions are playing their first home game tonight in forever. They haven't played at home since the 2019 season. This is the first mass gathering for a sporting event in this city that we have had in a very long time. It kicks off at 7 o'clock tonight. I have not done a ticket check this hour. I know they were on track to sell it out. I really hope they get to 12,500, which is the capacity for this game tonight. It's Michael Riley in the BC Lions. We think we think he'll be healthy enough to play tonight. He's listed first on the depth chart with a questionable beside him. And it's Trevor Harris and the Edmonton Elks looking for their first one of the season, 7 o'clock tonight. The new owner of the team, that was the big news yesterday. He came on our morning show today, which is hosted by Bick and the boss, Craig McEwen. And there were a lot of questions. I'd encourage you to go to our website, sportsnet.ca 650, and listen to that interview in its entirety. We played a clip earlier in the show. Amar Doman talked about a lot of different things, Jamie. And one of the things that was asked about was the building. It was asked about in a couple of regards, but one of the things a lot of people don't know, well, you know, if the Lions could get more people in there and if they could do it at a cheaper price, they'd get more money off the concessions. Well, the deal that they've had with Pavco and BC Place over the years, no, they don't get money from the concessions. That's kind of the deal that they have. That's where BC Place 
would theoretically reap some benefits. So that working relationship, can they work on that? Is that part of the plan moving forward? Here's what the new owner of the BC Lions, Amar Doman, had to say. Well, you know, I, I think it's as simple as this. You know, BC Place needs the Lions. The Lions need BC Place. There's no quick fix or move for the for the club. This is home. Uh, we need to work together, and uh, I look forward to those discussions, you know, with Pavco to say, look, we're here for the long term. How can we help each other and uh, make this a better partnership and improve on what we have and the experience? Uh, there's been a lot of money put into that stadium, of course, with the roof, you know, several years ago, seven or $800 million. Uh, They redid all the concourses, the suites. I mean, it's a first class stadium it really is um, but it's underutilized and my job is to get more people in there and uh, I'll be sitting down with them hopefully in the coming weeks to uh, start to uh, understand what we can improve on and uh, make the experience better for fans now the follow-up question Jamie was hey is BC Place the long-term home for the BC Lions there's always been talk about a smaller stadium for both the Lions and the Whitecaps is that something that we could see in future years and and Amon Doman Armar Doman I should say basically said well, that may be down the road, but that's a ways off. Like That doesn't happen overnight. He wasn't committing to anything. I thought his answer there was very open-minded. Hey, right now in the present, the Lions need BC Place, and BC Place needs the Lions. I think that's an open-minded view, and I thought his term that he used in there, it's a really good building. It's just underutilized. I think that's fair. And the other aspect of that is he mentions, you know, all of the money that's been poured into it, the renovations with the roof. And that's why I'm always skeptical that the provincial government is going to be interested in kind of moving on from BC Place and potentially tearing it down and putting something else there, which, you know, would open up a scenario where the Lions and the Whitecaps have to look for another building. It it does sound, you know, he's not saying it's never a possibility, right, or not even something that could happen in the next five or ten years, but... His focus is, this is what we have right now, and we have to make that relationship as good as possible before we even start thinking about things down the road. And it's true. I just don't see another easy solution other than for both of these teams playing at BC Place and trying to make the best of it. Yeah, and he's right. With what they put there now and the number of fans that have been coming in, it is underutilized, and that remains part of the program. Anybody who's been in there when that place is packed knows how great it is. And it hasn't happened that often for the football team we're talking about that's going to take the field tonight. But even when the Lions were getting 40,000 people in there, not on the regular, but for bigger games, like that place has a really good ambiance to it. But we're just not there right now. And he understands, like Bob Ackles understood at the turn of this century when he came back to the Lions, okay, we're at a really low number right now, and hopefully this is as low as it gets but it's going to come in stages. Like, this isn't going to happen overnight. It took the Lions at that time a couple of years with Bobby being back in town and eventually recruiting Wally Buono and bringing Dave Dickinson in. It took them a couple of years to build up to that sold-out 54,000-plus BC place Western final against the Saskatchewan Roughriders. And, man, that place was bumping. I don't think anybody is naive enough to think that's going to happen on the regular in the regular season. But we can get back to a place, hopefully, where it is at least vibrant during the regular season. And you got to think if that that's your first priority, right? Is building it back up to again having that sun, that sense of vibrant atmosphere in the regular season and then going above and beyond in the playoffs potentially. And you also got to think that if you do that work rebuilding excitement in the franchise, well if you do want to explore 
a different arena situation or a different stadium situation down the road. That makes it easier, right? Because there's more people on board. There's more excitement around it. Different municipalities around the lower mainland might be more interested if they feel like there's a passionate Lions fan base out there that's going to support the club. I'm an optimistic person by nature. I understand how big this challenge is in this community right now with the perception of the BC Lions, the job and, and the task that Amar Doman and the BC Lions have in front of them. But I will say I am optimistic from what I've heard. This sounds to me like someone who is not only enthusiastic but is also a realist. I think it's great. I really do, Jamie. He has, he has been rolled out, and he has managed his own rollout very well so far. The interview on the morning show today, I think, instilled a lot of confidence in people, as you say, enthusiastic, realistic, an air of competence about him, too, I think, that you understand, okay, this guy understands the challenges, and he also understands you know, the best strategies to overcome some of those challenges. Look, other markets have had other owners come in, and it hasn't necessarily worked. This market hasn't had a new owner in a really long time, so who's yep. to say that it can't work under his direction? We'll see if it works for Michael Riley, Rick Campbell, and the BC Lions tonight, part of our discussion tomorrow on this program. Jamie, I know you'll be along for a fifth consecutive day, unless you're telling me something right now that I didn't know. No, as far as I know. Although I will say, Scotty, actually, to kind of uh, pick up on a thread from earlier in the week when the show, I was uh, stung by a bee on my leg yesterday. Now, it didn't, uh -oh. it didn't end, end up with <laughs> no. me popping up to <laughs> Professor Clump sizes. I was able to keep it in check. But I, I, as soon as it happened, I was like, man, come on. What? I had just said I'd never had a bad run-in <laughs> with an insect earlier on the show. And I got a nasty bee sting yesterday. Well, I'm glad that it didn't go that direction. I imagine tomorrow's direction is going to be a great one like today. As mentioned, the listeners really brought it today, as did you, Jamie. Thank you once again. Roger Shergill, another salute to you. Big ups to Greg Ballack back in Mission Control. He is operating this program for the final time this week. I believe it will be Joel Gaudet tomorrow. We will turn things over to Canucks Connected in advance of the People Show. Have yourselves a great Thursday. We will talk tomorrow.